I was concerned about, you know, is this understanding of entire sanctification, this understanding of holiness, is it an idiosyncratic reading of the scriptures? You know, it's just my tradition that's reading it. And at least from my perspective, if it's just my eyes, if it's just an idiosyncratic reading of of scripture, then it is uh, problematic. You're listening to a special episode of the Holy Joys podcast. The following talk was shared with our Ad Fontes reading group for our 2021 survey of the Church Fathers. Visit us at holyjoys.org and stay tuned for weekly discussions of theology and ministry practice, all for a holy, happy church. I'm Jonathan Arnold, one of the co-hosts this afternoon. It's uh, wonderful to have Dr. Chris Bounds with us to present on Tertullian. Uh, We've been reading the Church Fathers together as a group and uh, looking forward to learning more about uh, his influence in subsequent Mm -hmm. Christian theology. Um, And um, so we're going to, I'm going to turn it over here to Dr. Fry to introduce Dr. Bounds, but quickly, just a couple words about our ministry. Um, Holy Joys is an online ministry that is devoted to John Wesley's biblical vision of a holy, happy church. Uh, We believe that theology is for the church, and we enjoy helping ordinary believers and pastors in the local church to see the beauty of doctrine so that they can experience deeper satisfaction in God. And that includes a strong commitment to Methodist Catholicity, tapping into the riches of our ancient faith to help serve the needs of the contemporary church. And our Ad Fontes reading group has been one effort in this direction. Um, We will be sharing this uh, recorded time together with those who could not join us. There's around 28 now pastors, students, and educators in our group uh, reading the Church Fathers together, asking questions, sharing insights, and uh, such a joy to just uh, read these these works together. And uh, this will be published as well for an online wider audience. And you can watch for that video at holyjoys.org. Um, we have the Holy Joys podcast. Dr. David Fry and I co-host that weekly, have discussions on theology and ministry practice. And we started releasing our conversations on William Burt Pope's Theology of Provenient Grace. Uh, so we look forward to some feedback on that. And Dr. Fry will be moderating our Q&A here in a bit. So I'm going to turn it over to him to introduce our speaker. Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. And there's a good chance that we probably had a quote or two from our guest speaker today in that podcast, in this podcast on uh, William Burt Pope and Virginia Grace, uh, being that us took uh, Wesleyan theology as a grad class from uh, Dr. Bounds. Uh, I took that in my years at Wesley Biblical Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, and was really blessed to have uh, Dr. Bounds there uh, as a a guest lecturer uh, on a regular basis, actually, and enjoyed the time there. And that was where I think, uh, yeah, that was where we first met and just became uh, good friends. And then, uh, of course, at the time, uh, you were uh, closer uh, to where I am now and where you are back, uh, Indiana Wesleyan. And uh, you left for a time to go down to Asbury and now you're back at Wesley Seminary, uh, which was not around when I was in uh, grad school. Um, but uh, great, great to have you back close. And uh, we have had the privilege of getting together on, on a few occasions uh, there in Marion. And uh, I, I think others 
and our Advantes group have had probably taken a class or two from you as well. And so you're not a stranger to uh, probably much of our audience and uh, you have uh, publications, you have uh, you have spoken at various ministerials and conferences that uh, many of us have attended. And so there's a lot of familiarity there. And I am very excited that you're speaking to us on Tertullian. Um, I, I love I love Tertullian. Look forward to this discussion. Look forward to hearing what you have to say. Uh, so let's uh, let's just dive in. And uh, thank you for joining us. And we welcome you, uh, Dr. Chris Bounds. Thank you. Uh, I, it's uh, it's a joy and privilege to be able to participate in this group and how excited I am about uh, what you're doing as, as a group and, and trying to read and ground yourselves in, uh, as you would say, the historic Christian tradition of which Methodism is, um, is a part of. And um, many of you who've had me before or know me that uh, I have a great love particularly for the for the patristic period for the patristic uh, writers um, uh, part of this arose out of my uh, doctoral work at Drew University worked with uh, uh, my my advisor and, and primary professor was a man by the name of Thomas Oden who uh, wrote a, a systematic theology that is now it's it's put in one volume called classic uh, Christianity. But uh, one of the things that I'll just begin by saying, one of the things that drove me to study the early church fathers has everything to do with, with, with what's at the very heart of this group, which is the doctrine of entire sanctification, or the more historic language is the language of, of Christian perfection. And um, it's, it's one of those things, uh, you know, is it there in, in, in Scripture? Is it there in Scripture? I, obviously, I do believe it's there in Scripture, but... But the question, but the problem is there are so many people who read uh, the Bible, read the Old and New Testament, even have PhDs, evangelical, sincere Christians, sincerely reading the, the word. And, and they arrive at a, a, a different conclusion in regard to this doctrine of, of Christian perfection. So uh, for a, a period of my early Christian life, I was... Uh, concerned about, you know, is is this understanding of entire sanctification, this understanding of holiness, is it an idiosyncratic reading of of, of, of the scriptures? Is it, you know, it's just my tradition that's reading it. And at least from my perspective, if it's just my eyes, if it's just an idiosyncratic reading of, of scripture, then it is uh, problematic. And uh, and so I, I went to, to Drew University and began to study uh, the early church fathers and and uh, what I saw uh, immediately in my reading of the, the Church Fathers was how pervasive the, the language of Christian perfection uh, was and is uh, to, to, to the Fathers. And as a matter of fact, I did my doctoral dissertation on the doctrine of Christian perfection in the Antonicene period among the Antonicene uh, Fathers. And I make a, a number of arguments there, but I, I will tell you there there. There are a few things that help solidify uh, my understanding of Christian perfection. And then not only that, my confidence that this truly is uh, the work of God and, and what Christ came to do through his life, death, resurrection, and exaltation to the right hand of, of, of God the Father was to, to bring about the sanctified life, this life of, of holiness, which is at the very heart of our our, our Wesleyan holiness and our Wesleyan uh, tradition. So, um, so more more specifically, 
in regard to uh, Tertullian. Uh, Tertullian, um, we have trouble really identifying sort of a firm date for when he was born and uh, when he died. But generally, we say that he was born around 160 uh, A.D., and then he died around 225, 230 A.D. So he, he lived, you know, approximately 70 years, which was a long life uh, for, for him. Um, we know that he grew up, uh, had a pagan background, uh, came to Christ uh, sort of uh, around probably the age of 30 or, or 35, didn't become a Christian until he was 30 or, or, or 35. But one of the things that that we know again by uh, about him, at least through his his writings, is that uh, he was someone who was a uh, diligent student of, of of the scriptures, and uh, not only a diligent student of uh, of the Old Testament, but a diligent student of the of, of much of what we now have and understand to be the New Testament scriptures uh, as well. So it was a diligent study of of, of the uh, student of the scriptures. But uh, Tertullian faced uh, what we all face at some point uh, along the line is this this recognition that there are, for as as, as many readers, I'm I'm using actually the language of Vincent of Larens, who is uh, another Latin writer, but Vincent of Larens, you know, asked, you know, he makes this observation for as, as many uh, readers, there are interpretations of, of, of Scripture. And, and so how are we to, to know what the right interpretation of, of Scripture is? And, and as a matter of fact, uh, Tertullian uh, addresses this in his prescription against the uh, prescription for the, the, the heretics. And he begins to, to talk about uh, the Scriptures have been uh, given to the church. Uh, and and therefore, because the heretics are outside of the church, they have no right to interpret uh, uh, the scriptures. But then also this tradition or the rule of faith uh, guides us in the reading and the understanding of, uh, of, of, of scripture. So he was a, he was a student of the scriptures, but he was also a, a student of, of the rule of faith that uh, is, is sort of described more fully for us by Irenaeus. That Tertullian read, Tertullian uh, knew the writings of, of Irenaeus. He knew the writings of the apostolic uh, fathers. He knew the writings of the, the Greek ap- apologists. So he was a student not only of scripture, but he was also a student of the rule of, of faith and uh, the uh, sort of recognized and acknowledged uh, writers and theologians that were a part of, uh, of, of the church. So, um, again, that's something that is, is significant for, for Tertullian. Um, something that's a part about his, his reading of Scripture that I think is important to keep in mind is um, many of us are aware that the church fathers have a variety of ways in which they read and understand uh, the, the Scriptures. I, before, I think we formally started broadcasting, uh, someone talked about origin, and I think we we're talking about origins, doctrine of the Trinity, and his understanding of the relations, the internal relations that that exist. Uh, at least that was a part of the the discussion. But as you know, uh, uh, Origen sort of read Scripture at three levels. Uh, there was this literal reading, uh, and, then, and then there was this uh, uh, legal uh, reading, the law reading, and then the spiritual uh, reading. Sometimes we might associate this with typological or 
um, also allegorical readings of, of, of scripture. And believe it or not, not all of the early church fathers are agreed on, on this. Um, so, for instance, uh, Basel uh, was a Cappadocian father who, who didn't have uh, a high regard for allegorical or typological readings of, uh, of, of scripture. Augustine, early on, uh, bought into allegorical, but towards the later end of his life was not into it was more into a literal reading. Tertullian represents the, this more literal uh, reading of the of the scriptures rather than an allegorical or typological uh, reading of, of, of scripture. So he's a student of scripture, student in this sort of more literal uh, way of of, of reading uh, of reading the Bible. So he's a student of scripture. He's also a, a student of the, of the rule of, of faith and understanding that in the end, uh, the church. Uh, as historically understood and as historically worked and understood the scriptures ultimately um, is the arbiter in, in, in disputes over the reading of, uh, of, of scripture. So that's uh, a little bit about uh, Tertullian. Let me talk just a moment about uh, some of the important things about Tertullian's uh, theology. Uh, important for me in Tertullian's theology is his doctrine of Christian perfection. And he follows, to a great degree, uh, Irenaeus's uh, teaching on, on Christian perfection. So if you read uh, Tertullian's uh, treatises that are against the Gnostics, against the Gnostics, um, you will see him basically using the same sort of argument and in, in description that you find in Irenaeus's Against Heresies. And in Irenaeus against heresies at stake, the overarching theme through which everything is seen is through the doctrine of Christian perfection. And in Irenaeus, you have sort of the Gnostic understanding of perfection. And then you had the Orthodox or the church's doctrine of, uh, of perfection. So perfection becomes the overarching uh, theme. Uh, through which uh, this contrast and refutation of, of the Gnostics takes place with Irenaeus. And so it is with Tertullian as well in his refuta refutation of, uh, of the Gnostics. And in the end, uh, Tertullian uh, believes that uh, we are uh, made perfect in, uh, in, in this life, that we are capable of realizing Christian perfection in, in this life, which for Tertullian is a, a perfection in love, the love of God and love of neighbor that's made manifest in obedience uh, to God. And, and one of the primary ways that uh, Augustine, I mean, Augustine, that Tertullian describes uh, Christian perfection is in his understanding of patience, patience. Um, a little bit interesting in regard to Tertullian's understanding of patience in relationship to uh, Christian perfection is impatience for a Tertullian is the root of all sin. Um, historically, there's been this debate, you know, is unbelief, just to let you know, John Wesley believed that unbelief is, is the root of all, all, all sin. Um, and of course, he follows uh, Luther in, in, in regard to, to, to unbelief. But, but Augustine says that it is uh, pride that is the root of, of all sin. But Tertullian says it's, it's not unbelief and it's not pride, but it's impatience that is the root of all sin. And, and part of that has to do with uh, Tertullian's um, understanding of the creation of humanity in the garden. 
Uh, and in many ways, he has been influenced by uh, what we might call the, the, the Greek writers and what will become a part of the Greek um, tradition uh, among the church fathers. And then Adam and Eve in the garden as they're created, um, because they are created, they are by necessity mutable, uh, subject to, to change. And uh, because they have come into existence, uh, they... Uh, they need to grow, they need to develop, they need to embrace and own the, uh, the holiness and the gift that God has given to them in, uh, in, in their creation. So there has to be some growth and development that takes place in order for them to eventually become ultimately what God wants them to, to be. Uh, so if I could use this language, it's not quite the language of, uh, of Tertullian, but this idea that um, we begin with creation of Adam and Eve, but the ultimate goal of God in creating Adam and Eve is to bring them into consummation. So uh, to put it biblically, Genesis 1 and 2 is supposed to take us to Revelation 20, 21, and, 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 and 22. That Genesis 1 and 2 is not the ultimate end for which humanity has been created, but it, it is uh, Revelation 2021 20, and, and 22, this, this union that is, is talked about. Of course, in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, humanity is created, I mean, humanity is created, and because humanity is created, um, humanity is, is, is mutable. Uh, there is this interesting idea that uh, because you know, what makes possible sin? How does sin arise? Well, sin arises out of the mutability of, of, of creation. And for something to be created by necessity, it is subject to mutability. And there's two sides of mutability. There's a good side to mutability, which is growth and development. And the negative side of mutability is corruptibility. So uh, Adam and Eve, as they're created in the garden, through decisions and choices that they're make that they are to become uh, what God ultimately wants for them uh, to move towards the picture that's given to us in Revelation, uh, the last chapters of the book of, of, of Revelation. And the problem in the garden is Adam and Eve, what leads to the fall is their impatience. And uh, again, from Tertullian's perspective, it's impatience that is the, the root of, of, of all, all sin. But humanity is, to, is, is supposed to grow and, um, and, and develop. Um, and so that is essential to Tertullian's um, anthropology. But anyway, it's, it's Tertullian's doctrine of, uh, of Christian perfection, which is central to his understanding of, of salvation, central to his understanding of, of anthropology that drew me to Tertullian's teaching. Uh, another aspect of Tertullian's uh, theology that is, is really important is that he, he is the one who's ultimately uh, responsible um, for establishing the foundation for our doctrine of the Trinity. He's the first person to use the language of, of Trinity. He is the one who gives to us sort of the classical definition. He's the first one to state the classical definition of the Trinity, one God in three persons. Uh, he's the first one to to use uh, that language and to make that uh, statement, use the language of, of the Trinity. So really, our, our uh, what will become uh, recognized as the orthodox doctrine of the, of the Trinity is, is first articulated by uh, Tertullian. 
And then also uh, Tertullian will be significant for the development of Christology in this understanding of two natures, fully divine and fully human, two natures uh, in the one person of uh, of the Son of God. So two natures in, in one person. So that uh, understanding of what comes to us today and we know to be orthodox understanding of the Trinity and orthodox understanding of of um, of Christology, it uh, it arises uh, out of uh, Tertullian's uh, work. Uh, another important idea for Tertullian in regard to uh, his um, his understanding of um, of salvation is uh, again following Irenaeus the doctrine of recapitulation and the idea that Christ is the second Adam and he succeeds throughout his entire life. Um, he succeeds where the first Adam failed. And it is his obedience in his humanity that makes possible uh, our obedience, uh, our obedience uh, as well in, in, in this life. But he succeeds where the first Adam uh, failed. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling at this point, but I, I just wanted to highlight some of the important ideas that are critical for me. Um, and so to uh, to summarize again, his understanding of scripture and relationship to the rule of, of faith. Uh, second, uh, his, uh, his, his doctrine of, of Christian perfection, his doctrine of Christian perfection. And then third, uh, some of the, the foundation that he lays that will be essential for uh, what will be the development and articulation of orthodoxy in regard to the doctrine of the Trinity and in regard to uh, Christology. Wonderful. So you've covered a good spectrum uh, of of, uh, topics there. So let's go back to uh, the first one, scripture and the rule of faith. So uh, we will have some, uh, we have some participants here who uh, this is really uh, perhaps maybe their first time to really delve into uh, Irenaeus uh, last month, Tertullian this month. So uh, if they have, if they've done the reading, they've come across this phrase, the rule of faith, quite often. Uh, can you give us a um, a concise definition or understanding of what uh, of how that phrase is used by both Irenaeus and, and Tertullian? And may yeah. I quickly qualify that question be, rather than us me ask it later because it might just save some time. Yeah. I'm also curious about how that phrase has been used then in future generations, because I've I've run into some who want to say scripture itself, its words are the only rule of faith. Others who want to say, well, the creeds are a rule of faith, but nothing else. Others who want to say, well, the Westminster Confession is a rule of faith. So uh, how broad do we, you know, expand that, that phrase? That would be helpful. Yeah, that is a good question. And I will say that if you read the early church fathers carefully, there is an internal debate that exists there uh, in regard to what constitutes the rule of faith. Let me give you two examples of this, two examples of this. Uh, first, I mentioned this earlier, uh, Vincent of Larens, uh, he writes the combinatory, uh, the combinatory, which literally translated means a, a, an aid to remembering. And at the very beginning of the combinatory, again, um, Vincent recognizes the problem of the interpretation of Scripture. And uh, for Vincent of of, of Larens, uh, he he says, 
you know, the scriptures are the word. I, I mean, they are they are the word of God. Uh, and he recognizes um, the uniqueness of, of, of scripture and scripture being the foundation for what we believe as as Christians. But owing to the depths and the complexities of the scriptures, for as many readers, there are interpretations. And not all of these interpretations can be reconciled with one another. So you have all these competing in interpretations, these readings of scripture. And so how do you determine what the right reading of scripture is? And uh, Vincent's answer to that is the rule of faith um, or what he would call Catholicity. Now, Catholicity, not in the sense of, of, of Roman Catholic, uh, but the, the, the Catholic faith. And he says that these have three criteria. I mean, how can you identify this rule of faith? Three criteria. And uh, that is universality, antiquity, and consensus. But this all deals with scripture. So the rule of faith for Vincent of Larens is the, the church's authoritative interpretation of scripture. So scripture is the foundation for what we believe. And the rule of faith is this authoritative reading of the church of the scriptures. Now, that's that's Vincent of Lawrence. But if you go to someone like uh, a Cappadocian father, I'm, I'm, I mentioned him earlier. I mentioned Vincent of Lawrence. I mentioned uh, Basel. Uh, Basel um, makes a different argument in, in regard to the rule of faith. Rule of faith does include scripture. And if you read uh, his his um, famous treatise on the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible fine reading, close reading of the biblical text. So this whole discussion of uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is, is, is rooted in a close examination of, of, of the biblical text, as well as some liturgies that exist uh, within, uh, within the church. But Basel's very clear um, in, on, on the Holy Spirit that uh, you have the scriptures uh, and then you have uh, things like liturgies and uh, you have uh, other sources that make up uh, the rule of, uh, of faith. So it's not just scripture. You have this uh, liturgical tradition and you have this oral tradition uh, that exists as well. So all of this to say, if you can think with me for a moment, and in many ways, our Protestant tradition is much more closely uh, in the direction of, say, someone like Tertullian and someone like Vincent of Larens in seeing the rule of faith being the church's authoritative interpretation of Scripture. And then taking uh, the Catholic Church and uh, taking the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church and uh, expanding that. It's not the rule of faith it goes beyond simply the authoritative reading of scripture, although that's a part of it, but also includes the liturgies. And, and then for the Orthodox, uh, for the Catholic, you, they have their own tradition, the Catholic tradition, that is uh, in addition to the, the scriptures. And then you get into Eastern Orthodoxy, you have the lives of the saints, you have the the, the uh, conciliar ecumenical councils that are also uh, a part of that as well. So uh, all of this to say is you can read the church fathers moving in uh, sort of different traditions. Uh, so some would say that uh, the rule of faith is just the church's authoritative exegesis of scripture. And then you have some church fathers who would uh, articulate the rule of faith is encompassing more than that. 
I think for me, uh, obviously, I, I, I'm Vincent of Larens. I'm with Tertullian in regard to to this point. But um, you know, Basel and and others uh, in their understanding of a more expansive rule of faith wouldn't see that this would be in any way contradictory or in competition, but that these different sources would be complementary, would be complementary to, uh, to, to one another. And uh, so anyway, different, there, there's sort of different understandings of what encompasses uh, the rule of faith. Although I would say there's not any real disagreements uh, among what uh, are considered to be the fathers of the church when it comes to uh, to what the rule of faith is and what the rule of faith entails, at least the core of it. Now, when you begin to get to the, the peripheries of it, there might be some 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 differences and, and disagreements. But but where is this most articulate? The rule of faith is 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 probably best. This authoritative exegesis of Scripture is probably best articulated in uh, what we find in uh, the creeds and specifically the ecumenical creeds of, of the church. But I, I do think it's more than that. And again, I find Vincent of Larens in his, in his commentary to be particularly helpful. So what is this rule of faith that's identified in most all three criteria uh, must be there? Universality. In other words, it cannot be an idiosyncratic reading of, uh, of, of scripture. Uh, it must be trans geographical and a transcultural reading of, of scripture. So you're going to find it in the East and you're going to find it in the West. You're going to find it among the Latin speakers and you're going to find it among the, the Greek speakers, universality, antiquity. And by antiquity, uh, what he means is that it is transtemporal, that you can uh, take this sort of reading, the authoritative understanding and interpretation of scripture and you can actually trace it back. You can trace the, the history of uh, that interpretation of, of Scripture all the way back to uh, the opening uh, the opening decades of, uh, of, of the church. So the earliest sort of teaching and reflection upon the Scriptures, it can be it has a pedigree. It has a, a, a temporal pedigree. And, and then um, third, um, consensus. And for Vincent of Larens, that consensus is found in the ecumenical councils, um, but it's also found in what he would consider to be the doctors of the church. Uh, these are the people who are recognized by East and West as uh, being the people that you can go to uh, for uh, a, a sound reading and understanding of the scriptures. And, and let me be clear here what he means um, by uh, consensus is that you don't find one father who has this particular interpretation, but this interpretation can be found among this group of, of fathers. An example in regard to, to, to this uh, has to do with, in many ways, uh, what many consider to be the reason why Vincent of Larens wrote the commentary was actually a refutation of the excesses of Augustine, and particularly Augustine's doctrine of, of predestination. And the problem uh, from Vincent of Laren's criteria is it doesn't meet all three criteria. Um, it, it certainly doesn't meet universality. Um, it, it's, a, it's an incredibly ins ins uh, uh, idiosyncratic reading of, of Scripture. It doesn't meet antiquity. Uh, the fact of the matter is the only people who articulate anything close 
to uh, Augustine's doctrine of predestination are the Gnostics and the heretics. <laughs> the, those are the only ones who uh, come close to, to articulate anything close to what. Okay. So it doesn't meet universality, doesn't meet antiquity. Now, Augustine would be viewed as a doctor of the church, someone you can go to and read for authority. But, but again, because there's no other doctors, authoritative figures in the church that read it that way, uh, you, you read them in regard to predestination. So what is the consensus that exists among them? And, and Augustine is all alone by himself in his understanding. of. So uh, Augustine's reading and understanding of predestination does not meet any of the criteria for this rule of, of, of faith, universality, antiquity, and, and, and consensus. So but getting back to Tertullian, I don't know, Jonathan, if that helps answer yeah, that, that very- question. It, and, and, and people appeal to, to different ones. I, I would say this to my Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox uh, sisters and brothers in, in, in the tradition that is there. And I think at least those who would be generous in, in their reading would, would say that, uh, again, their understanding of things uh, is not viewed as, as in competition with the understanding of Scripture, uh, but, but is, is being complementary to, uh, to, to, to one another. But am I correct in, in asking then that kind of the fundamental Protestant claim is not that we are returning to Scripture um, with without tradition in a capital T sense, you know, big tradition, consensual understanding, but really we are returning to the true tradition, which is the church's consensual and authoritative interpretation of Scripture. Now, that that is exactly right. And, and let me link this to uh, Tertullian. Um, and I, I don't know what you read. I, I wish I knew what you had read in preparation for today. But the uh, uh, Tertullian's prescription for the heretics, um, did you read that as a part of your, your, your reading? No, that was not one of our. Especially if you're interested in, in, in sort of scripture and in, in, in biblical interpretation and biblical authority. This is um, this is an important uh, work. But uh, in prescription for the heretics, uh, just to let you know, prescription here in the Latin means an objection, uh, sort of a legal objection uh, to, to, to the heretics. And, and in the end, uh, what uh, Tertullian argues is that the scriptures belong to the church. And because they belong to the church, only the church has the right to authoritatively interpret it. Now, this is, uh, this is significant for me, uh, getting back, Jonathan, to your point, and at least from a, a patristic perspective, and you can see at least the beginnings of this or the continuations of it. Uh, I, I won't say it's explicit in Tertullian, but it, it's, it's there. And, and, and that is that you cannot separate the scriptures from the church. And you cannot separate the church from 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 the scriptures uh, they go hand in hand now don't confuse them don't confuse them uh, but they are inseparable uh, from 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 one another and um, if you think with me for a moment I guess this is not Tertullian but if you think with me for a moment and, and you know this the Bible the Old Testament New Testament with a few exceptions is always written to a community meant to be read in community and meant to be interpreted in, in, in community. Uh, again, there are a few exceptions uh, to, to that, but the, the scriptures are principally written to the community and 
for uh, the, the community. And so it's meant to be read. It's meant to be interpreted in community. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't individually be reading and interpreting. I'm not, not saying that. I'm just saying you need to know first and foremost, the scriptures are for the church. And when I'm talking about the church, I'm not talking about I, I'm talking about uh, we. Um, so it, it's, it's written for the church and it's meant to be read and interpreted in, in, in the church. And so, Jonathan, get back to that's exactly uh, what, what, what it is. And so um, while we might recognize the scripture alone, um, we understand that to be not apart from uh, the historic church so that we read it in light of and in conjunction with uh, the, the historic uh, the historic church. So we read it presently in our present context and in local churches and, and local communities. But we, we do that also in conjunction with uh, the historic church uh, as well. But if you haven't read Prescription uh, for the Heretics, it's, it's worth reading. Uh, and, and again, Scripture's foundation. But Scripture, first and foremost, belongs to the church. It doesn't belong to anyone else. It belongs to the church, and uh, it's only the church that has uh, the right to, uh, to to interpret it. And uh, and I, I I would go on in regard to this. I, I really do think uh, you know uh, the promise that Jesus makes in uh, in John sixteen, when the Spirit of Truth comes, He will lead and guide you into all truth. Again, sometimes in our Western mindset. Uh, uh, this is where I talk about the superiority of the Southern dialect of the English language. I'm, I'm sorry, you poor uh, Northern, uh, you, you, you're limited uh, in, in, in your English language usage uh, because uh, in our Southern dialect, we're able to make this distinction between a singular you and a plural you. And uh, you're not able to, to, to do that as, as well. The difference between you and y'all, all of this to say is, is, is that um, the promise that Jesus gives is given to a community. It's not given to any individual. Uh, that is this idea of the Holy Spirit leading and guiding into, into all, all truth. So rule of faith, understanding of the rule of faith. There are some differences um, depending on the church father that you read. Uh, on how uh, they understand the source for, for, for the rule of faith. But in the end, the sort of things that they, that they identify as the rule of faith uh, is there's a great consensus. I'll use that language, great consensus as to what it is. And I do, with Vincent of Lawrence, believe it goes beyond even simply what we find in, in, in the creeds. I, I do believe that, um, that so for instance, uh, Augustine's, Understanding of predestination is outside of, uh, of, of, of the rule of faith. Um, understanding uh, Romans 7, uh, 14 through 25, as a description of a normative Christian life or of the Christian life, that would be outside of, uh, of you know, of, of the tradition of, of, of the church. So there are there are those things. Uh, many of you are familiar with uh, the ancient Christian commentary series by Tom Oden, and uh, and what he's been trying to do is is articulate as well what the consensual interpretation of these passages of Scripture are. I'm sorry, David. Yeah, let me ask you a, a follow up on that same subject, and then uh, I think we want to go to Christian perfection. Uh, but in uh, one of the texts that we read was against Praxius. Yes, and. Uh, in the second chapter, he says, 
what is uh, whatever is first is true and whatever is later is spurious yes so so can you comment on how that's obviously true but then how that may not because i i can see that there i mean he, he's writing in 200 ad right right, right, so, right. very I mean, yeah so he's not anticipating you know perhaps you know 1800 years more of you know theological reflection so can you and so i've heard i've heard it said then today that what is what is um new is a, is essentially false now, is that what tertullian is saying and how should we take what tertullian is if this is a principle for theology which i think it is how ought we to apply that today and i know you've touched on that now but let's look at that specifically yeah yeah um I, actually i do think that's what tertullian means and again he's fo- following irenaeus's thought in in regard to this this is part of the issue of uh, of uh the importance of apostolic succession uh for uh irenaeus and being able to track this rule of faith back to the to to the very beginning and again, this is important uh, for Tertullian as well. Um, I'm just saying something that would illuminate, uh, David, what you have pointed out in Against Praxis is uh, found in the prescription. I seem to be coming back uh, to uh, uh, prescription for the, 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 um, the heretics um, because he does talk about um, this idea of uh, uh, the scriptures coming from the apostles in, in the necessity of, of, of this and that the apostles are, are, are sort of the authority uh, figures uh, in this. And so apostolic succession, um, how important this is for Tertullian as well as, uh, as Irenaeus. This gets back uh, to Vincent of Laren's universality and tech, antiquity and, and, and consensus in, in, in many ways. So all of this to say is yes. Uh, in, in regard to your question, the first part of your question. The second part of your question is, is this new in regard to something new or, or, or novel? Uh, I, I, I think that Vincent of Larens, the combinatory, is, is helpful here because uh, Vincent of Larens really in the end says this, this, this rule of faith, uh, this Catholic tradition, this, this big T tradition, if I can uh, use it, is, is dynamic and it's, it's not static. Uh, that it grows and it develops, and um, and so he, he uses um, the analogy. If I can remember correctly, I, f- I forget what the analogy is, but, but he recognizes if if you take an acorn and uh, it develops into an oak tree, uh, you can see that you know, so to speak, it hasn't changed. It is just developed and it is it is matured, and and that's what. Uh, the big T tradition, orthodoxy, uh, the tradition of the church, what it does is it, is it grows and it, it, it develops. And uh, so there's a dynamicism that is associated uh, with it, but it will still bear the marks of universality, antiquity, and, and, and consensus. It will still bear those sort of marks that are associated uh, with it. The way that I would describe it is, um, of course, uh, Vincent of Larens didn't understand DNA, um, but we must always check whatever is being articulated doctrinally and theologically for its DNA. 
Does, does the DNA that we find, say, for instance, here in the 21st century, match the DNA that we find in Scripture? And does it match the DNA that we find in, uh, in, in the first you know, centuries of the church? Um, and so if there's a change in DNA, so if you begin with an acorn and you end up with a zebra, something has gone seriously wrong a- along the way. And, and so, again, there's a dynamicism. There is a, a, a development. So the way that Vincent would articulate, there's doctrinal development, but not doctrinal change. Yeah. So, so Tertullian is writing in a time of, um, of fairly severe persecution yes. of the church, right? The, yes. the church, uh, particularly in, uh, well, in his uh, Apologia, he... He is. He says, you know, why do you consider us enemies of the state? Yes. Right. And so he's defending, saying, no, we you know, the Christians, you know, we uh, make society better, not worse. And so he's, you know, that's his defense and the apology. Um, actually, let's let's go there uh, for for a moment. So we read uh, Tertullian's apology, uh, you know, all what fifty chapters or so. Um, I'm especially interested in chapters 30 through 39, where he uh, talks a lot about the relationship of church and state and uh, really makes a couple of of, uh, really important foundational points. One is uh, emperor worship, that Christians honor the emperor, but they don't worship him. And then, uh, secondly, this this point of Christians are not enemies of the state. Uh, what, do you have any thoughts on his idea? Generally, his his function as a theologian within that climate of Roman Empire, uh, what was still then largely localized persecution of Christians. Um, so that generally, but then maybe anything specific uh, theologically that would guide us on this very live issue for us today. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think Tertullian in his apology articulates well sort of what the position of the church is for the first, you know, three to four centuries. I, I think he, he what he's saying is not. I think it's consistent with Paul and Paul's understanding of the state. I think it's consistent with uh, the Greek apologist uh, that uh, preceded him. Of course, he's the first Latin writer and the first Latin uh, apologist, but he's not saying anything differently. Uh, and so, again, in, in, you know, part of what he's trying to do is to show the respect for the state uh, and, and, and that the, the church and Christians are a benefit uh, to, to the states. And uh, and also trying, though, to be very clear in the things that uh, the uh, the church can't participate in, the things that the church can't support uh, and misunderstandings about the church, you know, seeking to clarify uh, those 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 reasons. And so um, it, it really depends. And, 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 and that's the interesting thing, because, I mean, the first three centuries, first four centuries of Christianity. Uh, up into the rise of Constantine, um, has a fairly uniform approach uh, to it. Things are going to change. And, and of course, I would imagine most of, uh, of the people who are listening or are part of this podcast 
would recognize that, uh, you know, uh, uh, neighbors, H. Richard neighbors, Christ and culture. So these different models that exist in, in, in the church. Um, I do think, let me just say this, given our cultural context today in the West, that the model of the church's relationship with the government and larger society um, is, is the model that we need to take. Um, and so, uh, you know, being supportive where we can be uh, supportive, uh, being clear where we cannot support and, uh, and uh, addressing misconceptions and misperceptions uh, as, as they arise uh, in, in, in the larger society. Um, so I, I think that is, a, that is the model uh, for us, as opposed to, let me, let me say this. Um, so I think the model that uh, we've been used to in, in the church has been where we, we actually are in control and uh, ha- have a seat at, of power uh, in, in our, our government and in our culture uh, today. Um, but that just simply is, is it true? And I, I'm not someone who, I'm just talking personally, I'm not someone who laments that. Uh, it's, it's different. And I do think it, it calls forth from us a, a different model of uh, engagement with culture. And I do think the sort of engagement that we see in the first three centuries of Christianity and what we see in Tertullian's Apology um, is is probably a helpful model as we begin to strategize and think about uh, what our voice, what uh, our witness is going to be uh, in our our culture uh, today. David, I don't know if that that answers your 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 question there. I I, I agree. I think there is. Uh, I think really some some. Um, guiding principles that can be drawn pretty clearly from, uh, especially from Tertullian, uh, some other uh, early fathers as well. But I think he just, he says some things. He's very quotable, by the way, not just on this, but uh, throughout. Well, he's a great writer. He, he's, he's generally recognized as one of the greatest Latin writers in the history of, 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 of the Latin language. Yeah. He's, he's gifted. Yeah. Yeah. Even yeah, more so, so in the Latin Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, Jonathan, why don't you uh, redirect us uh, to the next uh, theme here that we've covered uh, so you know far? What? what do you want to yes. do next? So I want to make sure I squeeze in two questions with just a quick response, rapid fire, because if I don't do it, I might forget. One would be, before we move to another theological question, one would be, um, can you just, just from a historical perspective, just quickly uh, comment on the end of his life, Montanism. You know, I've heard. You know, he was a heretic at the end of his life. He's not a church father, according to the Roman Catholics. What's the deal there with that? Yeah, that's a it's a it's that's a it's a touchy issue uh, that is uh, that is there. You know, there are two significant early Christian theologians that are significant for me in my own sort of theological thinking and, and, and formation, one of which is Tertullian, and the second is Origen. And, and both of them are going to be declared uh, <laughs> later in life uh, heretics. Let me say this. Um, Tertullian is not a heretic. Uh, he's a schismatic. Uh, he, he, in other words, 
the problem of, of Tertullian isn't theological. There, there's nothing wrong uh, theologically with, with, with Tertullian. Uh, what happens with it, he does break uh, with, with the church uh, and joins uh, the Montanists. And so uh, it's it's not a theological, but it's a what I would call a schismatic break, and, and that that is an important uh, difference. It's an important distinction that uh, that that is there. Uh, obviously, I would disagree with Tertullian. I, I think that was a mistake uh, that uh, that that takes place. And yet, I, I want to be again. There's a lot of debates, and I would not. I, I'm a theologian. I'm, I'm a trained theologian, systematic theologian. I'm not uh, a church historian. I'm not a historian. I'm not, you know, trained. Those are not my areas of, of expertise. But from what I understand, um, the Montanism that uh, of which Tertullian is a part is is not what will be later Montanism. That, that sort of begins to have some serious theological problems and issues that are associated. Associated. That's very helpful. And then the other one, just practice. And I, just to let you know, uh, oh, I, I was going to say, as you know, uh, our own beloved John Wesley uh, had a favorable view of the Montanists. Uh, he, he tended to. Before, before Jonathan, you ask your next question. So uh, can you quickly tell us then the, the difference again between a, a heretic and a schismatic? So a, a heretic. Heretics may be schismatics, but not all schismatics are, are heretics. That's, that, that's, that's true. Uh, of course, uh, heretics has to do with doctrinal and theological uh, beliefs. And, and, and specifically at this time, um, a heretic would be viewed as someone who refuses to embrace uh, the rule of faith, as, as someone who refuses to embrace uh, the teaching of, of, of the church, the doctrinal and theological teaching of, of, of the church. That's a, that's a heretic. Uh, a schismatic is is someone who refuses to submit to the authority of, uh, of, of, of of the church, not necessarily the doctrinal theological teaching, but the authority of of, of the church and breaks uh, with, uh, with 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 the church, not over. Uh, and, and so uh, Tertullian, in that sense, he's he's not a heretic, but he's he is a schismatic. So he breaks uh, with the with the church, the Catholic Church, small C Catholic, please, uh, small C Catholic Church. And um, is, but but he's not a heretic. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very helpful distinction. Uh, go ahead, Jonathan. Yeah. Sorry. I'm happy to keep talking about it. I just don't want to didn't want to take up too much time with these kind of questions. The other one's just very practically. I did not find the translation that I read extremely readable. And you had mentioned uh, on prescription. And I, I also saw somebody mention if you read that, don't use the, you know, Philip Schaff edited versions really hard to read the ver- the translation i read was, was at times pretty dense pretty difficult uh, what translation do, are there others which one do you recommend yeah there there are uh other translations um uh, the one i have and, and the one the english that i use and again uh i don't want to be too critical of shaft i'm so thankful for shaft that's the most uh accessible in the english language that we have uh, oh, wretched man that I am, uh, that uh, it was written 150 years ago, and that's still the most accessible uh, English translation that we have as far as the, the breadth and depth and accessibility. But uh, the Fathers of the Church, the Fathers of the Church uh, series, um, I have found to be uh, better better translations. That are okay. There. 
I was thinking about getting that, but it's quite expensive, so I'll I'll bite the bullet. And, well, and, and this is this is and, and this is the problem. The problem is Shaf is uh, affordable. Uh, you can you can get it, and uh, and, and you have it available uh, to you. And I and I realize you know for people who are scholars, probably not the best translation, but it, it's it's still I I, I want to say it makes uh, the people who are trans it, it is accessible. It is accessible. Where some of the problems begin to arise is in textual critical issues. Uh, we have a lot better uh, text, a uh, critical text of the fathers, of these different fathers. And Shaft did not have access to those, uh, the, the best critical text um, in, in regard to translation. So that will affect some ideas and, 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 and things that are that are done there. So the, the newer translations like the fathers of the church are using better critical texts uh, that are probably more more accurate. It's it's the difference if if I don't get into trouble for saying this, it's um, well I won't say go, it. Go, go ahead. But, uh, but, go uh, ahead. But, we want you to say uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just gonna say I love the King James version of the Bible. I love the King James version of the Bible. There's much of it, but but uh, we have a much better critical text from which to uh, to translate than than the uh, writers of, of the King James version, the, the translators of the King James version. Now we'll and, and, uh, we'll save you we'll save you from getting any deeper with someone who might not. I think our audience here understands that very well. Yeah. But I want to hear in the last few minutes. Uh, let's go to. Uh, again, uh, against Praxius and, and elsewhere, where he develops uh, the his understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity and what we now you know know as Nicene uh, faith. Um, and can you talk a little bit about the his use of language, where he's getting these? Uh, he's Latin, right? And yes, he is. that he's dynamic, right? right? That dynamic uh, between Greek and Latin. And the language that becomes a, that we adopt for uh, Trinitarian theology. Yeah, um, I don't know that I can say a whole lot there because uh, generally speaking, um, you have the first person to articulate one God in three persons is Tertullian, and and the language is of course with one God substance, one substance, and three persona uh, persons. Um, but then you have not long afterwards, you know, maybe 20 years later or, you know, 15 years later, you have Origen, uh, who is writing in Greek, who is going to say the same thing in Greek, uh, one God in three persons, except in Greek, uh, the word there uh, in Latin, it's substance, and in Greek, it's usia, uh, sometimes translated as one being, and, and, but, but substance and usia are, are, are still is a usia Greek substance one, and it, it's still it's philosophical language, and it's the appropriation of uh, Aristotelian categories, so that that substance or uh, essence or a being has to do with answering the question of what of what something is, uh, and so what are we? Uh, we are human beings, whatever the substance. Of, of of what it is that makes us human that that is that is what we are so uh, all of this the same Tertullian's language of substance and uh, origin in the Greek usia being and substance uh, there's still one is Latin and one is Greek but it's it's using these uh, Greek philosophical categories to answer the question of what and so 
in thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity, what is taking place there in, in the definition of one God and three persons is um, the distinction between what and who. Uh, what and who. The first part of, the, uh, of, of that definition uh, is uh, answering the question of what. You know, one divine substance. And, and then the, the persona or hypostases in, in, in Greek has to do with persons. There is less sort of a debate over the issue of the first part of it, one God, and uh, a greater debate on what is exactly meant by persona and what is exactly meant by hypostases um, in, uh, in, in Greek. And uh, I, I think there's some, some, some inroads that are made, by, uh, obviously, by uh, Tertullian and uh, Origen. But it's going to still take the church a while more in, in, in fleshing out and in, in what is meant, particularly by uh, not the, the substance issue or usia issue, but, but, but by the persona and hypostases, persons. What, what is a person and what do we mean? And we say that God is, is, is three persons. And, and as you know, the, where this is, is, is taking us is the language of Augustine. And it's the language uh, that we find not only in the Latin West Augustine, but also found in the Greek East and the Cappadocian Fathers, which has everything to do with the distinction in relations. So that the language, as we were talking about earlier, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, really does tell us something of the relations of the eternal relations that exist in the one substance in, in this the divine uh, nature so that you have one who is the father who's unbegotten the language of uh, eternally begotten and the language of spiration or or procession in relationship to the spirit but at, at, at the point of tertullian and at the point of uh, uh, origin uh they're just beginning to to begin to flesh that out. And I, I would not say you do not want to look to Tertullian, you don't want to look to origin for a mature expression for uh, of, of the doctrine of the Trinity, but it is, it's, it's giving us a conceptual framework that uh, the church can continue to reflect and, and develop the biblical teaching uh, that we have right. on Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, and I felt like for sure that in, in uh, against Praxius that he I felt like he really was giving that framework and, and actually pretty clear language. And, uh, you know, we have the privilege of reading back through history uh, right, and, right. and understanding the development of that language and, and how it was flushed out in Nicene Christianity. But uh, um, yeah, so I, I really appreciate that. Now uh, I know we're over time, but we're going to take a couple more minutes here because uh, we'll bring it full circle. Uh, as long as I've known you, uh, you are especially passionate about uh, the doctrine as as you've presented the doctrine of Christian perfection and as as you have studied it uh, in church history. Uh, so I want to go back to Tertullian and you uh, described his understanding of uh, sort of the basic uh, problem of uh, whereas Augustine said pride or Wesley unbelief, uh, Tertullian uh, isolates that to impatience. Uh, which means I'm in trouble uh, because I tend to be a very impatient. <laughs> but can you can you talk? What, what's he mean by impatience? Uh, how can you help me? Maybe maybe this will come into a uh, some pastoral care here that you can provide for me as we close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think uh, impatience is um, a lack of trust in the process. 
It's a lack of trust in the in, in, in the process. And um, so, again, as I mentioned to you, uh, the for uh, Tertullian, the original sin is not trusting God in the process. It's uh, it's being impatient. Uh, you know, I want it now. Uh, it, it was a, what what happens in uh, the temptation narrative. Uh, was was being impatient and and wanting to to experience and realize more quickly uh, than uh, God intended, and uh, so all of this to say, impatience is not apart from trust or or faith or hope or or love uh, from uh, Tertullian's uh, perspective, but it is a it's another way of of seeing. What our fundamental problem or our fundamental, you know, issue is, which is uh, again um, uh, not trusting the process that that is involved, being impatient uh, in that. Very helpful. Let me just just put a plug in here. Uh, the 2011 Aldersgate Forum. You presented, uh, I believe, two papers, maybe three. One is on the doctrine of Christian perfection in the Apostolic Fathers. So we had Scott Harrower come and speak to us here on the Apostolic Fathers recently. Um, And then also on Irenaeus and the doctrine of Christian perfection in the second century. Uh, So I I have read one of those two. I think the first, maybe not the second. So I assume you would perhaps engage with Tertullian in that paper. A bit his some of his earlier writings or not? Which just to let you know, I did publish a paper on the doctrine of Christian perfection in um, in the Wesleyan Theological Journal on the doctrine of perfection in Tertullian okay. and uh, second, I mean third century Latin Christianity. So I also brought Cyprian into that discussion as well. For me, this is not the question you're asking, so my apologies is because I, I want to be clear that this idea of perfection, unfortunately, gets associated with the Eastern tradition of Christianity. But I want uh, I want to be clear that it's a part of the Latin uh, tradition as well. So it's not just Greek, it's, it's, it's Latin. And so I do talk about uh, Tertullian in this uh, Western Theological Journal paper, uh, Tertullian's Doctrine of Christian Perfection, as well as Cyprian in, in sort of that Latin or early Latin writers of the uh, of the third century. Good. And we have, uh, so Phil Brown is our theological editor. And so we have access to republishing these papers. We've been working through the archives. So we'll prioritize those, make them available in Holy Joys as well. And link in when we publish this recording, we will link to those. And we can also link to that other paper that you mentioned. Yeah, well, and that, that's good. I know the two papers I did at the Aldersgate Forum, one was on the Apostolic Fathers. The other one was on Augustine uh, and Augustine's teaching here. And in the end, what I wanted to say is, is that um, Augustine comes about as close to our doctrine of Christian perfection as you can get. Uh, there's some quibbling over uh, the issue of the nature of sin. I, I mean, obviously, we believe that, you know, entire sanctification of Christian perfection is is being set free from the power and the nature of sin and being set free to uh, for perfect love and, and, and obedience. Um, but Augustine, the way, you know, Augustine's understanding of this, uh, obviously, Augustine believes that the normative Christian life is a life of obedience and it's a life of love. Um, 
I, I'm sorry, I'm going off in a different direction. All of this to say is um, those were the two papers that I did. I, I don't I know we're at the end of our, our time, but I do talk about Augustine's doctrine of perfection and really talk about how close it comes to our West. And the good news for me in the midst of that is Augustine is generally viewed as the most pessimistic of the church fathers. If, oh, that was as pessimistic as we are today in the larger body of Christ, we would be a far healthier church. We'd be a far healthier church. We can quibble with Augustine over some of the semantics of, of that, but man, when he articulates the vision of the Christian life and what the Spirit of God empowers us to do, I just want to say, preach it, brother. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right there. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking part of your afternoon to be with us today, and I appreciate this so much. This will be uh, again published as uh, Jonathan has mentioned. Uh, soon and uh, will give us an opportunity to go back and reflect uh, again on what you've shared with us. Uh, so thank you so much, and I hope you s- hope to see you again and face to face sometime, uh, not through this virtual means, but uh, sometime soon. But God bless you, and I appreciate you being here with us. Thank you for this opportunity, and thank you for this work that you're doing. And uh, may the Lord's blessings be on this endeavor. Thank you for listening to the Holy Joys podcast. Email your questions to podcast at holyjoys.org and they may be featured on a future episode. Our labors for a holy, happy church are supported by generous listeners like you. Please pray about partnering with us at holyjoys.org forward slash donate.